I ran across an article this week um, that was intriguing to me, and the headline is part of what caught my attention. Neuroscience reveals gratitude literally rewires your brain to be happier. And I'm not surprised by that, but there are a few little points. I'll just try to highlight some things out of this article. There were some psychologists from the University of California at Davis uh, and then one from the University of Miami who published a study a few years back of some of the physical outcomes of practicing gratitude. And listen, to, here's how they set up the little study. One third of their subjects were asked to keep a daily journal of things that happened during the week for which they were grateful. Another third were asked to write down daily irritations or events that had displeased them. The last third of the group were asked to write down daily situations and, and events with no emphasis on either positive or negative emotional attachment. At the end of the 10-week study, each group was asked to record how they felt physically and generally about life. And this is no surprise at all. Is it the gratitude group reported feeling more optimistic and positive about their lives than the other groups. In addition, the gratitude group was more physically active and reported fewer visits to a doctor than those who wrote only about their negative experiences. And then the article goes on to describe the health benefits that, that those who, who practice gratitude experience. Uh, everything from improved sleep quality to reduced feelings of anxiety and depression. Uh, levels of gratitude correlate to better moods and less fatigue, even inflammation reducing the risk of heart failure for those who are susceptible. In the article, they go on to describe some of the psychological benefits, and you could probably guess, uh, and I won't go into great detail here, uh, but gratitude has profound positive impacts uh, on our lives individually and our families and communities. Now, at the end of the article, they gave three steps to becoming more grateful. And this is where the real magic begins to happen. And I say that somewhat sarcastically. First of all, they, they say, keep a daily journal of things you are grateful for. And I don't dispute that. I'm just saying we need to go a little bit beyond where this study actually uh, takes us. And they actually say, list at least three things. And the best times for writing in your journal are in the morning as your day begins or at night before you sleep. Then number two, make a point to tell people in your life what you appreciate about them on a daily basis. And then finally, when you look in the mirror, give yourself a moment to think about a quality you like about yourself or something you have recently accomplished. And that's where it breaks down a little bit for me because most of us are fearful of looking in the mirror for a variety of reasons, particularly if it's early in the morning. I mean, that's where you kind of do the damage assessment and you know, many mornings you're like, there's no hope. Like, I mean, there's no amount of moisturizer or whatever, you know, that's going to help this train wreck. Uh, because you look in the mirror sometimes and you see, and this is, per sorry for those of you who are younger, but this is reality that you're going to face shortly. You, you not only see bags under your eyes or dark circles, like there are people behind those bags and dark circles. There are stresses at work or in the community. I mean, there are reasons that your face tells a story that you don't always want it to take. So that's where I kind of laugh at that last little thing, like look in the mirror until you think of some quality you appreciate about yourself and write it down and be thankful. Like some days that's all but impossible. I, I don't disagree with this at all. But I do think the Lord while agreeing with much of this in the article, would actually take us beyond these last three recommendations. I think he would take us 
beyond our own experiences and maybe even a habit of looking in the mirror until you remember some quality about yourself that you fully appreciate. Because I would say if we're limited to our life experiences and we're limited to what we know or see in ourselves for the, for the foundations of gratitude, we've got a pretty small foundation to work with. So while there's nothing wrong with any of those practices, I just think that they come up short. And it really does amount to a kind of self-help effort, which if you live long enough and you work hard enough at all that self-help and self-rescue and self-salvation, you come to the conclusion that you can't do it. No, we really need something or someone outside of ourselves, don't we? And that's where in his holy word, in both the Old and the New Testaments, God continually carries us outside of ourselves and carries us all the way into his presence, carries us into his character, carries us deep into his work that has continued for ages, carries us into his heart and perfect character, giving us glimpses of his glory and tastes of his goodness because he knows that's where the unfailing source of an eternal gratitude grows. And all that he does and all that he is shapes the most significant and even insignificant aspects of our lives. A week of thanksgiving without God at the center is only going to be as great as your pumpkin pie is or your turkey. And if those are disappointing on Thursday, and if you do end up in an unusual scenario where you're like all alone on a holiday like this, it would be understandable that you would say there's not a lot to be thankful for unless you're in right relationship with the God who created you. And the God who sent his only begotten son into the world to save you. So today we're actually going to begin, begin taking a look at Psalm 118 because there's so much here that I'm going to save some of it for next week. And it won't be leftovers like you'll have on Friday and Saturday, as good as those are. I mean, we're going to save a significant portion for next Sunday as well. So I want to read Psalm 118. So turn there, please. We're going to read the whole psalm, though we won't work through all of it this morning. Uh, it's about a three-minute reading, and I want you to follow along, and then we'll pray. And as we pray, we'll remember our church family who are traveling and out from us today. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a, flame, like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, 
but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Father, as we open this particular word together, we are fully dependent upon the Spirit of God to bring its truth to bear upon our hearts, our minds, our very lives. We are dependent upon the Spirit of God to illuminate us because in our own understanding, we, we are darkened, we are foolish. We don't know which way to go and how to apply this particular, th this word. But you have promised us that the Spirit would guide us and lead us into the knowledge and understanding of your truth. So make good on that promise today. We are in need of the strength that comes from this word. We are in need of the perspective on life that comes from this word. And we are in need, Lord God, of, of a fresh touch of the Lord on high, who is the great subject of this psalm. And so we pray that you would draw near to us as we come to you by faith and seek your blessing. On this week of Thanksgiving, where there is a good deal of travel and special meals and gatherings and sporting events, there are all kinds of things that are planned in the week, of he week ahead, but our prayer is that you would keep our hearts and minds centered in the great God of this text, that we would see you not only as the giver of life, but as the defender, the, pre the protector, the refuge and rescuer. Oh God, how I pray that this would be a week of, of intimate fellowship with you personally for everyone who gathers with us today. I pray that it would be a week of blessed conversation, of prayers together, of fellowship that is rich in Christ, Memorable, not simply because there might be good food or good meals uh, together, but that above all, there would be a rich fellowship in the Lord Jesus. For those who are traveling, give safety. Some have not yet begun to make that trip, and we ask that you would let your hand of, of guidance and protection rest upon them in the days that are ahead. Others, Lord, who are in the middle of uh, a travel, uh, even today, Show yourself as the good and steadfastly loving God of this text. 
And then finally I ask, Father, that as the gospel is preached all around the world on this Lord's Day, that you would empower it, sanctify it, that you would summon those who hear to believe all that you have revealed in your word, that you would grant the gifts of repentance and faith, and that you would build your church by the simple and clear preaching of the word. Do it here. Do it in this state. Do it across the globe for the name of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, return with me to the opening verses of Psalm 118, and you can see a couple of the, of the special themes there. Oh, we're already ahead. A summons to thanksgiving. Give thanks to the Lord, and here's the reason why. He is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. You know, God is not simply asking you to look in the mirror today until you find a reason to be thankful this week. He is actually saying, I want you to look at me. I want you to consider who I am. Consider the works of my hands. Consider my heart, even, as I express it toward those who are like you. And so there is a summons to all of us to be thankful on this day. And who is the great recipient of our thanks? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Give thanks to the Lord. And then verses 2, 3, and 4 reinforce that. Let Israel say to their God in praise to him, his steadfast love endures forever. The house of Aaron refers to the priestly class of people. And when this was written, Israel was God's special people. And though the gospel had, had been sprinkled through Gentile peoples and nations, it had not yet blown open as it did at Pentecost. And we've looked at that in Romans lately of what God did to uh, rescue Gentiles. And that really kind of moves us to verse 4, let those who fear the Lord. So whether Israelite or not, whether priestly class of Aaron's descent or not, let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. But there is something that begins to follow on this, and that is a testimony of salvation. And the psalmist, and we don't know who wrote this particular psalm, and there are many who actually think it was, uh, it was uh, post-exilic, that is, after the, the people of Israel had been uh, exiled to Babylon for a period of time. I don't think there's definitive ans- uh, evidence one way or the other. Uh, it's, it's likely not a psalm of David, uh, but nonetheless, there is a look back to God's great rescue for Israel. And, and I think what is clearly in view, and I'll touch on this in a little bit, is that there's a direct quotation from the song of Moses back in Exodus 15. Uh, it's a testimony, though, of God's people through the ages. Now notice what the testimony flows out of. Verse five says, out of my distress. That is, there's an oppressive state of some kind. It could be of a physical nature for you or for me. It could be a mental uh, oppression that we are bearing, social or economic. It doesn't seem from the language of the text that the author of this, who, who likely was a ruler in Israel, maybe one of the kings following David, There was some kind of national opposition, so it might have manifested itself to the author of the psalm in in military sense, and that's that's a frightening thing. But it doesn't fill in all the specifics to let us know exactly what the psalmist was experiencing in that particular time, in part because the Lord wants all of us to connect, and all of us can relate to this distress. Notice how he describes it. All nations, verse 10, surrounded me. They were on every side. And then he uses two vivid metaphors for us. Swarmed by 
by bees, as it were. If you've ever been swarmed by bees, I mean, that is a terrifying thing. Even just a few of them flying around with intent to sting is a, is a painful and frightening experience. Then he also says he was surprised by an erupting firestorm, compares it to fire among thorns. And if you've ever uh, had to uh, put together a, a burn pile of weeds or maybe even thorns from rose bushes or things like that, when they are dried out uh, and then you set flame to them, typically, I mean, it is a flash. It is an eruption. And I think there's a vivid picture here that the psalmist is using to try to help describe the kind of distress, something that he could not get away from, something that just erupted, maybe even unexpectedly, that seemed life-threatening. And then he even says in verse 13, I was pushed hard. All kinds of circumstances that push us hard, aren't there? And I wonder today what might be your particular distress. What's the thing in your soul that is so disruptive or so oppressive that it, it, it has become the life-dominating thing at this moment? Is it some physical or mental distress you have been carrying? Is there some social or economic adversity that you are bearing? The psalmist has his own experience, and we have our own experiences. I think all of us, to some extent, know what he means when he speaks of this distress. But notice what he does with it. And that is the response of the believer. I called on the Lord. Now, let me pause and make sure. If you're looking at that text, uh, it's prob- that word Lord is in all caps, isn't it? And that's a reminder to us. We know that that's one of the way that one of the ways that in translating out of the Hebrew into the English, we try to distinguish from two different words that in English are translated Lord. One of those is the Hebrew word Adonai, and it refers to the Lord in all of his sovereign power. That's another Lord word. This one in all caps is the Hebrew uh, word Yahweh. It's the special name of God. It's the name by which he reveals himself to Moses. It's the name that if you go back to Exodus 3 and look at verse 14, you hear God himself using this name, explaining it to Moses, and and then saying, I am who I am. And so sometimes we refer to God as the great I am. Well, that's just an English way of, of trying to explain or unfold this very special name, Yahweh. He's the self-existent one. And I want you to think about this for just a few moments this morning. God has no beginning. He has no end. Now, you and I, after God created us and set us on the eternal timeline, will exist forever somewhere. But there is a point in history that you and I did not exist. God created us brought us into the world, and then our existence, uh, as we came into existence, in a sense, God put us on this uh, perpetual line forward. It, it will not come to an end. You're not gonna cease to exist at some point. But for God, there's no point in the past where you could go, oh, that's where he began. To be self-existent not only means he has no beginning and no end, it means he exists by his own power. God never goes for an annual checkup. 
Nobody ever hooks up an EKG to say, how's your heart doing? There would never be a morning that he would, first of all, he doesn't sleep, so he would not wake up, but let's just say for a moment, he, he kind of has a, sim- a, a, a morning routine similar to you and me, uh, that he kind of assesses like, oh, I'm not, just not feeling great today. I, I better seek some outside energy pill or drink. God doesn't even need a monster drink. We could talk about whether he would even like have a desire for something like that. I think he has a refined palate. But you and I need outside sources of energy, assistance, of help, of input. We're not self-existent, but he is. I love Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So this is the one that the psalmist says, I called to him. I called to the great I am. I made my prayer, my plea to the self-existent God, the one who has all things and has what I need. And then look at the next phrase, the Lord answered me and set me free. Now free has to do with a place noted for its vastness with implications of safety and freedom. It's a wide open space. And what a contrast that is to being surrounded on every side, to being swarmed by distress like like bees would swarm, or being in the middle of a firestorm, that fire that was raging through those dried up thorns. No, the psalmist says, the Lord answered me and set me free. What power this is to deliver. What kindness this is to deliver. And now from there, the psalmist goes on to meditate specifically on the character, the the person that God is, and there are six things that that emerge that are powerful for us. Look at verse six. This description, as it continues, speaks, first of all, as God is my ally. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know, I was thinking this week, actually, mankind can do a lot of things to us. And some of us are experiencing those things. I mean, let's start with a synthetic virus from a laboratory in a place called Wuhan. I mean, Christians aren't immune from that. Followers of God didn't get a pass. Let's talk about the closed border to the north that makes it all but impossible for some of our members to care for their parents and family members. You you and I have no control over that. We could talk about what Washington is doing to us at the moment, and I'm not even going to go on there. What about the sinful choices of individuals, some of which have actually destroyed our marriages, destroyed our families, destroyed human relationships? Others have made choices that have altered the course of life for some of us or led others into moral or economic ruin. What can man do to me? There's a whole host, a horrible host of things that mankind can do to us. So the psalmist is not, you know, whistling in the dark as he waltzes past the cemetery. This is not Pollyanna kind of thinking. No, this actually is a perspective that lifts an individual who just said, I was in great distress, surrounded on every side. It's a perspective that actually lifts us above what mankind really can do to us and the distress that results from all that it's a perspective that says look up stop looking within stop looking around 
It's easy for us to lose perspective on eternity when all we've known is the temporal and in, per, in particular when all we've known is the difficult, stressful, distressing, temporary. One of the kind things that the Lord does for us though is to say, you know, there's, there is a life above and beyond what you can see right now. We kind of think that this life is all there is. And if your life has been really hard for a really long time, you, you tend to have kind of a fatalistic thing like, well, this is the, this is the hand I've been dealt. You know, life just stinks and then you die. And you know, if that's all you can see at the moment, then it's understandable that the pandemic would be absolutely terrifying to you. That politics would feel overwhelming to you. That inflation would be scary to you. And I'm not saying it's not a concern to me. But God would have us to look above and beyond these immediate stress points and consider some other things and the first is that he is our ally what a remarkable thing that as the psalmist says in verse six the lord is on my side that's the difference maker that's what empowers us to walk confidently and steadily through things like crazy political times and pandemics and all kinds of difficulty Then notice the second thing. He says, verse seven, the Lord is on my side as my helper. So now he's he's fleshing this out a little more. So it's great to know that the Lord's on my side, but like, is he just standing next to me silently or is he active? No, here the psalmist says in no uncertain terms, he is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. So there's gonna be a kind of help that God brings here that is a game changer. Verse 13, he comes back to this thought after saying I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Now the question is, what kind of helper is God? You know, the first glimpse of this kind of help comes on day six of creation. Go all the way back to Genesis sometime and read through those first two chapters. And when you come to chapter two, verse 18, God steps into the middle of this beautiful and spectacular creation process that's been unfolding over six days. And he says, it is not good that this man should be alone. And then he says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now that little term, helper, a long time ago in the King James Version got kind of uh, jammed together with meat. Now meat is a, if you're reading the King James this morning, meat is a good word, but we don't use it in the way that uh, the King James uh, translators were using it in that day and, and, and fitting or comparable to or corresponding is a better word but that all got jammed together and so now sometimes people refer to a help mate, help meet. It's not one word, it's two words and it's the one concept is important to understanding the other. A helper who perfectly corresponds to this male and as it begins to unfold, when God miraculously takes a rib from Adam's side and fashions the first woman, there is an aspect of the image of God that is first revealed in her that is not as clearly seen in Adam. You know why? Because she's created in likeness to God who is the divine helper. And so the woman's helpness, if I can put it that way, her helper quality is not like we, we so often think of it as domestic help. And, and sorry, ladies, many of you have been relegated to a second-class status that God never intended. And guys, we, we need to stop looking at the ladies in our lives as, you know, 
maid and cook and taxi cab driver and you know all the all the chores it, it drives me nuts to hear people talk about well there's man's work and there's woman's work you know what in my home growing up it, there's just work and yeah there were things that my dad was good at and things that my mom was good at and you know they each learned to stay out of one another's business and that's been true for Kristen and me as well um, but work is work and women are not second class you know, relegated to some domestic kind of help. No, they're godlike help. You see, the woman was going to bring something into the world itself, not just to Adam's life, but, but into the world itself that would reveal the kind of help that God is. And you see it reflected when Moses finally has two sons, and the first one he names Gershom, and the, the meaning is given in the book of Exodus, but the second son is Eliezer, and then he gives the explanation himself. The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So the help that we're talking about here in Psalm 118 runs all the way back to the opening chapters of scripture where we say God is not domestic help, but God is heroic help. God is warrior-like help at times. God is miraculous, uh, miracle-working help at other times as he is needed. And so we we come to a, a powerful thought that he's our ally, but he is our helper. You remember the lines of that old hymn? Some of you grew up singing this as I did. Um, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. The old way we used to sing that one particular line was, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. Well, that's actually an allusion to another really important text in the Old Testament where Samuel uh, piles up Uh, Well, actually, it's just one stone, according to Scripture, but it's similar to how Israel has piled up stones of remembrance in the past. And he takes a stone, 1 Samuel 7, verse 12 says, and and placed it, and then called its name Ebenezer. And those first four letters, E-B-E-N, that's the Hebrew for stone. And the last four, E-Z-E-R, that's the Hebrew word for help. Stone of help is what he's saying there. But the meaning he attaches is, Because the Lord, till now, the Lord has been our help. It's a powerful concept. And this helper Lord will bring us to a place of freedom and security. That's why we don't fear the present difficult circumstances. That's why we can actually say, what can man do to me when this God is at my side as this kind of help? It doesn't mean that you get out of difficult circumstances immediately when you make the prayer. It doesn't mean that he reverses your, your health difficulties or financial challenges or relational uh, brokenness, but it does mean he will. It's coming. Well, there's a third thing in the text, and that is this. He is my refuge. Verse 8, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Verse 9, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And the, and the mention of man in verse 8 in parallelism, parallelism with princes in verse 9 uh, is, is a literary device, as, as one author notes, that just kind of says, you know, from, from one end of humanity to the other, from the lowest and most ordinary of people, just, just pick any old man, to the most powerful prince on planet earth. Whatever protection, whatever safety they might provide is inferior to this God. It's human nature to look for shelter in people, isn't it? 
It's human nature to try to find some kind of sense of security or refuge in relationships. That's what lies at the root of party politics. At the end of the day, we, you know, we, we tend to circle up and form groups or tribes, as we've heard that term a lot lately, and then we want to pick the strongest member of our tribe to lead the way. We're looking for leaders who would provide a kind of safe shelter or refuge. But inevitably, they all disappoint, don't they? That's what the psalmist is talking about. That's why he says it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in any person that you might find on planet Earth. And I, I was thinking about this over the last couple of days, that the frustrations and fears in our hearts with the people around us may actually reveal more about our faith than it does their inadequacies. And I say that because we are the ones who are prone to misplace our faith. And if I expect my wife to be my functional savior every day, can she ever live up to that? Many of you know Kristen well, and she is a wonderful, wonderful person, but she's not perfect. So I dare not place my trust in her as my ultimate place of security and safety. And if I do, she won't be able to live up to it, and I'll be profoundly disappointed. Pick any relationship on earth and just run that little exercise through it and ask yourself, you know, is my frustration with people or the fears that I have in moving forward in a relationship, uh, is it actually indicative of the weakness on the other side of that or is it, does it have to do with my misplaced faith? The psalmist would have us say, with him, take refuge in the Lord. Moving on very quickly to verse 14, he's my strength. The psalmist is quoting the Song of Moses here. You can go back to Exodus 15 and read the whole Song of Moses. I'm actually going to give you a little homework assignment at the end of the, at the, end of the sermon this morning that will, will help you um, take a closer look at this. It's interesting to me that the psalmist is going back probably close to 500 years at the time that the psalm was written. And he's pulling out an old soundtrack, if you will. The Song of Moses that they sang after God delivered them from Pharaoh and his army deliver them from the slavery in Egypt. And, and in that psalm, as it is recorded here, the Lord is our strength. And what does that strength look like? Well, he tells us in verse 16, the right hand of the Lord exalts, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. That is, God, God activates his strength in such a, a way that it results in something positive for the people. And, and in Israel's case, it was a mighty deliverance from an attacking army. In the case of this psalmist, we know generally speaking what it was. It was rescue from a time of distress. And the exaltation that's spoken of here, that the right hand of the Lord exalts, he actually raises people from a lower position to a higher. And you may say, I've been asking God for years to raise me from a lower position. Hang on. It will come. It's inevitable. Verse 14, he's not only our strength, he is our song. And then look at verse 15, how, the, how that quickly morphs into something that I think is, it's illustrative of, of how we ought to practice our gratitude. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Now, you know, at the time that these things were being written, many in Israel were living in tents, certainly at the time of the Exodus. Those are temporary shelters. And I know there could, it's poetry, so it could just be a metaphor, but I was mindful this week that, you know, even we really are temporary residents here. And, and we sometimes begin to believe that there's permanency here, and there's really not. 
So don't let the brick and mortar that you're living in uh, confuse you on that. It, it's, it's just a really nice tent because this world isn't our ultimate home. This is not our ultimate destination. We're people on the move. But even while we reside in temporary shelters, glad songs of salvation fill those shelters and ought to fill those shelters. And then uh, here, here's another line from the song of Moses. If, right out of that, what the psalmist does is to quote, again, Exodus 15, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. We don't hear the music there, but the psalmist is breaking out into an old song. It's just one of the songs that fill his temporary shelter. And finally, he's my salvation. Only God can preserve us from harm or distress. And so confident of this salvation being provided, the psalmist goes on in verse 17 to say, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Death is always with us. Some of you have experienced it even in this past year, a family member pass from this life into the next. Followers of, of Christ, true worshipers of God are not exempt from death. But we know that that great enemy has been defeated and death itself doesn't have the final word, but the God who rescues does. And even as we look at this next week and go a little deeper and see one particular individual who, who carried this very song of hope in his heart all the way through death and out through the resurrection shows us what this really means. Do you have this hope in your heart? Do glad songs of salvation fill, first of all, your soul and then your household? Some of your households are filled with a lot of other conversation or your news feeds or even just the silent fears you hold in your heart, but I wonder how much of each day you devote to the kind of powerful and transformational truth here. See, God's not simply showing up with three really good suggestions for how to have a grateful heart in this week and saying, just kind of, you know, if you look long enough and hard enough around you, you'll find something to be thankful for. No, he's saying, hey, look at me. Look right at me. Let me tell you who I am. Let me remind you of what I've done. You keep your heart and soul set on me, and then you put pen to your journal and give thanks. Oh, I'm gonna be thankful for pumpkin pie on Thursday and, and the two kinds of turkey or smoking one. That's, that's a first for us this year. Can't wait. And then the you know, traditional old-fashioned put it in the oven for the designated time. So, And, and I'm gonna be thankful for the leftovers on Friday because I have a few traditions that you know, I've kind of started personally. But that's not the ultimate source of my gratitude. And it shouldn't be yours either. It's God. So look up. Look out. The distress, it's real. And you might have your own metaphors for how you would describe it, not with swarms of bees or, or some raging brush fire. But even from that distress, call to this God, the self-existent one. Because he is everything that you see on that screen and so much more. I'm gonna give you a homework assignment, as I said. All right, you ready for this? First of all, I actually want you to read through Psalms 113 to 118 this week. Six Psalms, 
they're actually the hallelujah psalms that were used by the Israelites in conjunction with Passover. Just take one a day. Um, and then, and, and start tomorrow. And that will put you at Psalm 118 next Saturday. So when we come back to it, you're going to be primed with it. And, and then as you read through it this week, just make a note of uh, maybe two to three things from each psalm that will make you grateful. And nothing that I said today, I mean, it wouldn't even be plagiarism if you said, well, you know, Danny said on Sunday, that's a good thought. And when you get to Psalm 118, great. Then here's the third part of your homework. Share those things with someone. Do it each day if you can. Family member, coworker, neighbor. I mean, don't traumatize a stranger with it. Like, hey, can I tell you what I read in Psalm 115 today? I'd be like, uh, maybe. And then finally, there's a great song, and I can't believe we have not sung it here at Gospel Hope. It's not in our, our repertoire, and I'm going to talk to Andrew when he gets back, and uh, we need to learn it at some point. We won't be able to sing it next week, but it's a, it's a really, really well-done rendition of the Song of Moses. And so if you just Google Song of Moses... Aaron Keyes, K-E-Y-E-S. He's one of the, the collaborators in it, but he often gets the most credit for it. I would encourage you to listen to it this week because it just takes a good chunk of Exodus 15, a little portion of which is quoted in Psalm 118, and, and just puts it to a tune that is very singable and uh, very memorable. And I, I would love to encourage you in that way. So go on Spotify, go on YouTube. You can... You can access that in a number of places, all right? But reading through the Psalms that I mentioned would be the, the most important part of that this week. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, how thankful we are that you are great in glory and that you are the God who comes near to help, to save, to rescue. There is no other refuge that we know or could find apart from you. And I ask that throughout this day and, and the days that follow, you would cause us, like the psalmist, to experience the greatness of your character and your work. And we ask, Spirit of God, that you would seal to our hearts every word of truth that comes from you. And whatever opinions we have formed in our own hearts or even that I have spoken that are, that are not an accurate reflection of who you are and what you do. Just let them fall to the wayside, useless and lifeless as they are. And so we pray all of this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.